Get ready for adventure. Islands of it, man. From the studios to Volcano Bay, this is the Universal Joint, a podcast devoted to all things universal with your host, Jim Hill and Dustin Foods. Welcome to the Universal Joint. Now, when we use the word joint to describe this podcast, we aren't necessarily referencing those funny little cigarettes that some folks like to puff. But rather, this is a joint in more of the classic sense, like a, a fun place where you can hang out with friends and, and talk. And And on the Universal Joint podcast, what we're looking to talk about is the Universal theme parks. The three in Orlando, Universal Studios Florida, Universal Islands Adventure, Universal Volcano Bay Water theme park, as well as the original Universal Studios Hollywood attraction out in Southern California. And on occasion, we may also talk about Universal Studios Japan over in Osaka, as well as Universal Studios Singapore. We'll also try to keep you folks abreast of what's going on with Universal Studios Beijing. But given the opening of that 300-acre theme park has been pushed back from 2019 to 2020, well, it could be a while before we share any stories about that project. And speaking of we, the Universal Joint is really a joint effort. So let me bring in my co-host on this project, one Dustin Fuse. Hey, how's it going? It is going great. I am happy that after all these weeks of talking about this show, (laughs) we're actually doing it. But people know me, Dustin. They've heard the various other podcasts I've done with Len and other folks and that sort of thing. But, But they aren't as aware of you and more to the point, your vast body of knowledge when it comes to the theme park world. And I guess I have to ask, why are we doing a Universal podcast? It's a a great question, and it's something that when we're looking at the body of experience between the two of us, it's more about the fun and excitement that's happening within Central Florida. And my background, yes, it's it's Disney. I'm a former Disney cast member, actually living up here in Toronto. But when I was working for Disney down in Florida, I also had a universal annual pass. And I was there multiple times throughout the contract down in Florida. And it, it was an absolute blast. And every time that I had gone down since then, I always made a point of going off property from the Disney Resort and heading over to Universal. And whether or not it was one or two days, I always felt like there was something there that really drew my attention. It wasn't just one thing. You know, we look at something like The Wizarding World of Harry Potter or some of my favorite franchises such as Men in Black or The Simpsons. Everything had a place. And I felt like when we're going into this project that Universal is so much more than just the number two in Orlando. It's all about competition. So I feel like when we're uh, able to bring this to light and the stories going back and forth between the history as well as the trip planning side, I think we'll be able to have some fun with this. That sounds like a, a nice place to start out with this podcast. And in the installments we'll do, we'll try to talk about the news of the day and this show are basically the pilot the big news coming out of universal orlando is that they finally revealed the names of that resort they're building over on the old wet and wild park site and the rumors flying around prior to this was everything from a a new gate to just everything under the sun so what's going on is it's uh, universal's endless summer resort now the new on-site value resort will actually be made up of not one but two separate 
hotels. You're going to have the Surfside Inn and Suites, which will offer about 750 rooms and will open in the summer of 2019. So just around the corner for everyone who's planning to go down there next year, you're going to have another option, as well as the Dockside Inn and Suites, which will feature 2,050 rooms and open sometime during the summer of 2020. Now, keep in mind, when we're going that far out from the summer of 2020, summer could also mean December. No, that's true. That's some fine theme park math you're doing there. I was reading in the press release of this thing, they describe Universal Endless Summer as a value resort, which initially confused me because isn't Universal Cabana Bay Beach Resort and the soon-to-open Ventura, aren't those supposed to be value resorts as well? The thing with Universal is that they're trying to redesign and, and train us to think about resorts in a different way. So with Cabana Bay and the Aventura Hotel, they're actually known as prime value resorts, whereas the Universal's Endless Summer is strictly a value resort. This is a whole new category of room that the resort will actually be offering, where one of the rates could actually go down as low as $73 a night. Now, mind you, this is an extremely low price point, especially for people who have uh, paid the 110 to 120 over at Pop or um, All Stars. There's a nice range of prices, so this is going to be a, an extremely low price point. But you're looking at the perks. So one of the perks is the early park admission. So this allows you to enter the Universal theme parks an hour before the official park opening every morning. Plus, of course, you get the free shuttle service that takes guests staying on site to and from Universal's three theme parks as well as CityWalk. All of these are something that we've seen up the road and we're used to. So we're looking at a basic offering that will draw people in from the Disney mentality of extra magic hours and basically retraining them into similar lingo, but still giving them some extra perks that I'm sure people who are staying on site will definitely enjoy. Got it. I guess for me, what kind of amuses me about this is that when you think about where the Surfside and the Dockside are being built, that 30-acre spot that the Wetmond used to occupy. And I just find it ironic that back in the late 80s, that if you, you visited this water park and if you, you climbed to the top of something like the, the, the corkscrew, if you looked over at Universal Studios, which was still being built at the time, all you could see was the Bates Motel, which, which trust me, is not a place you really wanted a vacation when you were in Florida. Yeah, I wonder what the resort pricing would be for the Bates Hotel and, and what the perks would be. I'm thinking you really don't want mom to do the turndown service, or at least <laughs> that's what I got out of psych. Yeah, and we're looking back in... October of 88, if I'm remembering correctly, right? Yeah, well, you have to remember that the original plan for Universal was, of course, that it was going to be an actual physical production studio as well as an attraction, a theme park. And so one of the very first movies that they made there, well, actually, TV movie, movie made for television, was Psycho for the Beginning, which was this sequel to... Psycho that I think at some point it, it aired on Showtime. Now, in the original Psycho, wasn't the house that Mrs. Bates lived in, and, and I'm using the, the phrase lived in with the loosest possible sense of the word, high up on the hill that overlooked the motel? Right, you are, Dustin. But Central Florida 
isn't really known for all of its hills, now is it? Well, you know, it, it, it's intriguing you say that because I actually did some research and the highest point in the state of Florida is Britain Hill. It's 345 feet above sea level. But again, mostly this is Florida, just flat. And so when they decided they were going to do Psycho 4 in Florida and they were going to replicate the place on the old back lot where Alfred Hitchcock had shot the original film back in November 59, February 1960, Folks at Universal Studios actually first had to hire this fleet of dump trucks to haul more than 60,000 cubic yards of earth to the theme park work site. And then they got this bunch of bulldozers who spent a week and they were pushing the soil around and until finally they formed this 22-foot-tall hill and on top of which they then built this replica of the Psycho House. And then the set stood in place for years, didn't it? Well, before the park proper was built, you could easily see the Psycho House as you, you drove by Universal and Kirkman. But as the years went by and all the landscaping that was planted around the theme park grew up and got fuller and taller, it then got harder and harder to see the Psycho House. So eventually, the hilltop set as well as the Bates Motel got torn down to make room for Curious George Goes to Town, that play area with the water feature. That may be being transformed into something else. Okay. Uh, <laughs> foreshadowing. Now, if we're looking back in 1998, isn't that when Universal originally bought the property that Wet n' Wild was located on? Yes, October 2nd, 1998, if I'm remembering correctly. Universal bought the entire 30-acre complex that SeaWorld creator George Malay built back in late 76, early 77. Most people these days don't remember that when Wet n' Wild first opened in March of 1977, it was this colossal flop, but that was because the spring and summer of 77 were among the wettest on record, and when it's basically raining every day for weeks on end, who would want to pay to go to a water park? That first year the Wet n' Wild is open, the park loses $600,000. Now, Lesser Man would have looked at those numbers and thought, this is a bad idea, let's not throw good money after bad, let's shut this money put down. But that's not the way George Millay thought. He looked at the books for Wet n' Wild, went over the first year of operation, took the weather into account, and said, you know what we really need here? We need to expand. We need to add more rides. We need to do more advertising. And the weird part of this story is that the strategy actually worked. Orlando's version of Wet n' Wild actually started turning a profit in 1978 and made money every single year after that. So when Universal decided to buy Wet n' Wild back in October of 98, they weren't thinking, we're going to build a Fowler Resort here someday. This was all adding a popular water park to the assortment of attractions that it was already offering its, its visitors and guests to Orlando, right? Both in 2008 and 2012, they made sizable investments in Wet n' Wild. They put, I want to say in 2012, they put in... Blastaway Bay, which was sort of a kid-friendly castle area thing. But but again, to get back to October of 1998, you have to remember, at this point in time, we are still six months out from the grand opening of Universal's Island Adventure. CityWalk's first nightclubs and restaurants won't start opening to the public till February of 99. That's still three or four months out at this point. So here's what absolutely fascinates me about this phase of the $2.6 billion expansion project, Universal is doing everything within its power to make sure that the mistakes that were made back in June of 1990 when Universal Studios Florida 
first opened, were not made again. Take, for example, Universal's second park, the Islands of Adventure's uh, construction schedule. Back in the late 1980s and early 1990s, Universal Creative actually gave themselves just 42 months to design and build all of Universal Studios Florida. Now, when they went over to Islands of Adventure, Universal Creative decided to extend that period by a full year and a half, giving themselves uh, 60 months to design and then build a full second gate for the Universal Orlando Resort. Not only that, but when Universal Creatives then began working on the rides for, for Islands, they started much earlier than they did for the rides for uh, Universal Studios Florida. For example, uh, the Amazing Adventures of the Spider-Man ride. I mean, you know, the, uh, arguably the marquee attraction at that park. Park doesn't open till May of 1999, but they had that attraction fully built in late 1996, early 1997, and then they ran it thousands of cycles in a warehouse up in Buffalo, New York. And then once they were certain that it was actually going to work on site, they disassemble it and haul it down to Orlando and then install it in the Marvel Superhero Island area of the park. And there's this great interview that Mark Woodbury did out ahead of the opening of Islands where he talked about, we ran the heck out of Spider-Man up on Buffalo before we thought we brought that ride down here. Uh, Mark, by the way, is is now the vice chairman of Universal Parks and Resort. But back in 99, he was just one of the guys working on a Universal Creative Design and Development Group, the people who did the rides for the park. And then just to make sure that they have even more time to tweak things. Universal designated the period between March 27th and May 12th, 1999 is Islands of Adventure's soft opening. So that way the Universal team members who are supposed to run this $1 billion theme park on 110 acres get all the time that they need to familiarize themselves with how the rides actually run with all of the safety procedures and all of this stuff that they need to do right from the very beginning and then bobble the actual rebranding and relaunching of Universal Orlando Resort. Universal Studios Escape, yeah. God, that name was a puzzler. They actually started walking that name out for the resort in March of 1998, a full year before Ireland's then began its soft opening. And I remember talking with Laura Souls. She's uh, the current manager of the awful job title, Entertainment, Creative Development, and Show Direction at Universal Orlando Resort. But her first job with the company was she went out with the mall tour that they sent a group of entertainers out to malls around the country to tell them about this new theme park they were building and the hotels and the city walk. And so she's out on the road in uh, late 1998, early 1999. So the story that Laura was telling me was like, she never entirely understood this universal escape name because it's like when you hear the word escape, the first thing you think of is prison, not a resort. And who wants to escape from resort? And then 20 years later, all we're talking about are escape rooms and all of these these different things. So yeah, definitely. A, I don't know what to tell you. That's a very good insight. It seemed like so. a good idea at the time. Uh, yep. <laughs> and then when uh, Universal Orlando officials, you know, eventually wised up uh, in, in 2001 and dropped the word escape, opting to rebrand themselves a is the Universal Orlando Resort. In fact, if I'm remembering correctly, that rebranding of the resort was done in mid-January of that year. 
just as the Hard Rock Hotel with 650 rooms and 29 suites were coming online at Universal Orlando. Now, that was the second on-site resort, right? So the first one was the Lowe's Portofino Bay, which opened up in September of 1999, uh, which some four months after Universal's Islands of Adventure had its grand opening. Now, this hotel resort actually has kind of a fun backstory, which has to do with uh, Academy Award winner Steven Spielberg. We all know Steven. He's been part of the design team on Universal Orlando Resort for over 30 years now. Now, when Steven was first brought on board back in January of 87 to serve as the creative consultant on Universal Studios' Florida theme park, He was there helping to shape this resort from the very beginning all the way up until now. Now, back in 93, September of 93, when the officials at MCA first officially revealed that they'd be expanding Universal Studios Florida, they changed it from a single theme park to a full-blown resort with that second theme park and at least five on-site hotels a golf course, as well as a city walk style retail complex. Now, Spielberg was asked if he had any ideas as to what the possible theming of those five on-site hotels the Universal was looking to build in Orlando. Steven started to go through his mind of of work and started to reminisce about the real-life Italian fishing village where he and Kate Capshaw had honeymooned back when they were married in October of 91. Now, given how romantic he and his bride had thought Portofino was, Spielberg thought that it would have been a great theme, the perfect theme for Universal's first on-site hotel. You can hammer on Google today and see that the Spielbergs still clearly have a soft spot for the actual Portofino. You go in there today and you can see sites of Kate and Stephen and their children from 2012 and 2014 and 2015 wandering the streets. So clearly this is a place that meant a lot to them or, or means a lot to them. Absolutely. Now, getting back to the Universal Orlando Resorts, after the Lowe's Portofino Bay opened in September of 99 and the Hard Rock Hotel opened in January of 2001, it wasn't until June of 2002 that the Lowe's Royal Pacific Resort opened. And with the 1,000 rooms that came online when the Royal Pacific opened and the additional 750 rooms from Portofino and the 650 from the Hard Rock, the Universal Orlando Resort had just 2,400 on-site rooms in its inventory. And that's the way things stayed for, what, the next 12 years? Yeah, it was with uh, Comcast's December 2009 decision to buy NBC Universal from General Electric for $30 billion, coupled with the overwhelming success of the first Wizarding World of Harry Potter, which opened at Universal's Islands of Adventure on June 18, 2010, that finally gave Universal Orlando the incentive to expand its on-site room inventory. Now, Steve Burke, all right, he's the CEO of NBC Universal, and he's also the senior executive vice president of Comcast Corporation. Now, this is a guy who's, who's he's had a lot of uh, previous experience with, with theme parks and resorts. In fact, if you go back to 1992, Steve was actually the president and chief operating officer of Euro Disney. So this is a guy who knows what a big difference having just the right number of hotel rooms on site 
can do to River Resort's bottom line. And Steve learned that the hard way because with Euro Disney, they really should have opened with three hotels, not five. But totally disregarding that, (laughs) this is what Steve told a bunch of financial analysts back in the fall of 2012. So again, we're just, you know, two years out from the opening of the first Harry Potter. It's like, we have 2,400 rooms today. We should probably have 10,000. Hotel rooms are strategically important because if people stay in your hotels, they spend an extra day at your theme park. And it's amazing when you look at the trip planning mentality behind that because that's something that Disney has learned from the very beginning when if you have people on site and you give them that full day mentality, they don't want to leave. So I'm pretty sure that explains the aggressive hotel building program that's been going on at Universal Orlando Resort since then. And when Universal's Cabana Bay Beach Resort opened in late March of 2014, that added an additional 2,000 rooms to Universal Orlando's on-site inventory. Okay, and then, all right, Lowe's, Sapphire Falls, that opens July 2016, that adds another 1,000 rooms to the pile... And then in June of last year, we had those two towers with the killer views of Universal's Volcano Bay water theme park open. So that's another 400 rooms. And in August of this year, the Aventura opens up right across from Volcano Bay and that's 600 rooms. So that's 4,000 rooms added to the resort's on-site inventory in just four years' time. Jeez, that's crazy. And if you factor in the other 2,800 rooms that Universal Endless Summer Resort will have once construction of Dockside is complete, that's 9,200 rooms. That's still 800 rooms shy of those 10,000 on-site rooms that Steve Burke told financial analysts that the resort would probably need when he was talking with them back in the fall of 2012. So this means the Universal Orlando Resort isn't done expanding yet, is it? When it comes down to it, there's always more space that Universal can find. And when you look at the 101 acres that they bought back in October of last year for $27.5 million up by the uh, Orange County Convention Center, that's directly adjacent to the 475 acres that Universal Orlando bought back in December of 2015 for 130 million. So when you put that together, that gives them more than 570 acres to use for future resorts and attractions. So no, the Universal Orlando Resort isn't done expanding yet. And at some point in the not-so-distant future, Steve Burke's going to get those 10,000 on-site rooms that he thinks that this resort needs. Isn't there some sort of lawsuit going on right now that involves all of the property up by the Orange County Convention Center? Yeah. So Stan Thomas, who's the George, uh, our businessman, whose company sold the original 475-acre chunk to Universal Orlando, has turned around and sued the company, arguing that due to the private deed restrictions on some of the parcels that Stan's company sold to Universal, that company is legally prohibited from building a new theme park 
park on that site. Ooh, that would have been nice to mention before handing off. Yeah, it's all in the million. details, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. so the, the legal matter right now is in the middle of uh, its discovery period. And as I recall, the Sentinel had a story last month where nearly 40,000 documents that are directly related to these pieces and parcels of property are now being reviewed. So it could be a while before this dispute is actually resolved. See, now that plugs in beautifully with WFTV. That's Orlando's ABC affiliate. It was reporting earlier this week. The rumor that's now making the rounds is that Universal Orlando's fourth theme park, which is supposed to be built around various Nintendo-related IP, won't be ready to receive its first guest till sometime in 2023? I wouldn't know about that. I do know that they are doing some grading over in Osaka, where Super Nintendo World, that's the new land for Universal Studios Japan is being called, is going to be built. Now, the last photos that I saw, there was no foundation work being done or any steel going up. They were just still pushing dirt around. It's just disappointing to hear, given what, they broke ground on Super Nintendo World at Universal Studios Japan back in June of 2017? You can't rush these things, Jim. I mean, look at how long it took Hogsmeade to happen. And Universal didn't actually officially announce that, or reveal that they were partnering with uh, Warner Brothers to create a theme park within a theme park that would then feature the characters from the Harry Potter movies until May of 2007. So even though the reimagining of this part of Islands of Adventure officially got underway in January of 2008... The Flying Unicorn Coaster, which eventually became the Flying Hippogriff, stayed in operation until July of that same year. Oh, God, that's right. I remember all those pictures that people used to take of the construction that was going around in and around Merlinwood while they were riding the Flying Unicorn. I remember if you went on the ride, it was basically you got on the attraction and the entire time the Universal team members who were working in this corner of Lost Continent had to get on the PA and they repeatedly, you know, do not take pictures on the moving roller coaster. It's extremely dangerous. And that didn't start theme park news freaks. They had to get these shots of what was going on with the Royal Oak Tavern. But again, they're not safe to take pictures on a moving roller coaster, folks. I, I agree, but you can't go wrong with construction photos. Big fan of that. No, you can. Now, speaking of roller coasters, have you heard about what's going on with Dragon Challenge? That thrill ride closed September 4th of last year. Since then, although the old Dueling Dragon track has been removed, and the last I saw, there's like these two huge giant construction cranes that are hovering over that six-acre worksite. Now, what I find intriguing in that, based on the aerial photos that were taken as part of uh, Hogsmeade back in mid-March, the show building that housed Dragon Challenge, it's still in place. Okay, so the building that the queue was in is still yes, in place. Yes, yes. Uh, are you thinking what I'm thinking? That Universal is pulling a 20,000 leagues with this? You know what? It could be. Stranger things have happened. Now, what Jim's referring to is what the Imagineers began working on. New Fantasyland and Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom back in late 2009. They pulled down the old 20,000 league show building, but they left most of the backmost wall of that structure standing. And the reason they did that, by building... The show building that housed New Fantasyland's Little Mermaid attraction in such a way that it then actually incorporated 
the old back wall of the 20,000 League show building into that structure. Well, supposedly that show building, the Mermaid show building, then, at least for tax purposes, wasn't a brand new structure anymore, but rather a rehab, a remodel, which then meant the structure could be taxed in a very different way. Now, do you think that's what's actually going on with the old Dragon Challenge queue? To be honest, I'm not sure, but hopefully we'll know more by the time we record our next installment of the Universal Joint Podcast. Which I'm guessing is Jim's less than subtle way of saying today's show has now come to an end. Now, I hope that you all have enjoyed the first installment of this ongoing series. If you have any Universal-related topics that you'd like Dustin and I discuss, or you have stories that you'd like to share with with two of us, don't hesitate to reach out. Well, for Jim and myself, thanks for listening in. It's been groovy having you hang with us for the Universal Joint. Tune in again for this and other great podcasts found on the Jim Hill Media Network.